This is episode 22 of the Angry Tech News Podcast for Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. This is the Angry Tech News Podcast at angrytechnews.com. Now your host, the Angry Programmer, with a mic, Ryan Bemrose. The more observant among you might note that it's not actually February 8th while you're listening to this. If you're listening on February 8th, please let me know how you did it so that I can go back to yesterday and release this podcast on time. From the Go Fund Yourself department, there's a lot of intersection between tech and political this week. For example, Last week, a story popped up about the United States Internal Revenue Service floating the idea of using facial recognition as part of the electronic tax filing system. I didn't end up bringing the story to Angry Tech News, and whether out of an uncanny precognition or simple fortuitous luck, it's a good thing that I didn't. The IRS came out this week and announced that due to privacy concerns, they are abandoning the plan. Another example is the reemergency of the UK Conservative Party's dream that just won't die of an internet where teenagers somehow don't have access to porn. Specifically, a bill requiring that all ISPs implement an age verification before unblocking access to any site deemed pornography by the government has come up again. The idea is exactly as unworkable as it was when it was brought to the chambers of parliament in 2015, 2017, and 2019. Even China, who has implemented such a rule and who has a lot more practice on stomping on the rights of its citizens than the UK ever had, is not able to prevent teens from seeing naked people online, only to drive it underground. I suppose that might be the goal of the UK Conservative Party, to use Puritanism to turn the UK into China, but somehow I'm not sure even the people of the UK would stand for it. And then... There's the quickly developing story of GoFundMe's attempted suicide by stealing nearly $10 million of donor funds intended to help out Canadian truckers with their protest. The company claims that the protest had turned into an illegal occupation. It's amazing how easy it is to be declared illegal when your opponent is a corrupt government. I mean, if they can't find a law that you broke, they can just pass a new one, am I right? The company goes on to say that because some protesters broke the law, the GoFundMe terms of service clearly give them the right to withhold funds. While this is very likely true, given the inscrutable and Byzantine language in most terms of service these days, it clearly didn't prevent GoFundMe from distributing millions of dollars to the Black Lives Matter organization while violent protesters were burning down American cities in BLM's name. Donors are invited to request a refund. Any funds not refunded this way will be donated to a charity of GoFundMe's choosing. Presumably, it will be one that meets with the approval of the company's woke overlords. Of course, a refund may not be enough to appease donors who are understandably livid and want to see the company hurt after a move this obviously political. Many are encouraging, for example, that if you donated to the truckers via GoFundMe and your donation did not reach its intended destination, that you call your credit card company and initiate a chargeback rather than requesting a refund, with the rationale that each chargeback costs the company money and that enough of them will exhaust GoFundMe's credit and cut off their ability to accept payments. I personally would never recommend a move so transparently vindictive, but I will suggest that if you are running or donating to a crowdsource campaign, and don't want to risk getting your campaign funds stolen for political reasons, 
perhaps one of GoFundMe's competitors would be more to your liking. Ultimately, though, I see GoFundMe's betrayal as an indicator of things to come if we move to a cashless society. For years, we have been encouraged by the siren song of convenience to give up our physical currency and trust entirely in numbers in a database. And it's true. It's much more convenient to carry a plastic card with access to your entire bank account anywhere than it is to have to mess around with paper money. But this incident highlights the problem with digital money that only exists in a database. Your money can be turned off if you annoy the wrong people in a position of authority. I don't know how many times I've heard, yeah, but the government wouldn't do that when I make the argument. Yeah, go tell that to 10,000 truckers in Ottawa right now. From the Primordial Bytes Department. Next up is a story about some rapidly evolving malware for macOS brought to us by the Microsoft security blog. Yeah, you heard that right, Microsoft. Yes, they push a competitor to macOS, but put down your torches and pitchforks and bear with me for just a minute. Recall that Microsoft's biggest cash cow is enterprise software, and that enterprises also run Macs. The parts of Microsoft that aren't Windows have a vested interest in serving enterprise no matter what the platform is. Okay, that out of the way, this new malware is called Update Agent and is characterized by its gradual upgrading of persistence techniques, according to a blog post from Microsoft Security. Most malware is developed and deployed separately, often by different people. Malware developers can make a lot of money by selling their software on the dark web to someone else who deploys it and assumes all of the risk. Update Agent is fairly unique in that the malware is clearly being actively worked on, a strong hint that the developer is involved, and it serves as an interesting study in how malicious software evolves. Okay, I find it interesting, but I'm a coder. If you're bored already, skip next. You're going to get more. In September of 2020, the initial version was considered to be a fairly basic information stealer, according to the blog post. This version would have been installed as a basic Trojan horse in some other legitimate software or by misclicking the wrong banner ad. This version merely scanned the system and uploaded what it learned. The second version gained the ability to download and install DMG files, the file type for the Mac store's installable software packages. This wouldn't mean much on its own because of a Mac feature known as Gatekeeper, which blocks the launch of any program downloaded from the web without a signature. But the third version, released only a month after or later, fixed that by simply removing the downloaded from web file attribute from the files that it grabbed. It also learned to inject itself into the Mac launch agent folder, causing it to run on every boot rather than only when an infected executable was launched. By version 4, the malware had discovered the launch daemon folder, which is just like launch agent, but allows it to run as root. By the fifth version, in October of 2021, the malware had learned to fully take over the gatekeeper quarantine database, deciding for itself which programs would be quarantined and which would run freely. It also took over the sudoers list on the machine, allowing it to add or remove user accounts and launch anything with root privileges and no prompt. This latest version also developed the ability to cover its tracks by deleting files and altering logs. The main thing that Update Agent seems to do, aside from stealing data, is to install an ad injection software called AdLoad on the machine, using it to inject its own ads into the downloaded web pages via a network man-in-the-middle attack. Actually, Microsoft uses a much more inclusive and awkward phrase, person in the middle, but it's MITM. And of course, AdLoad also has the ability to download and install its own software. The Microsoft analysis also discovered unused domains and payloads, a sign that the developer isn't done increasing the sophistication of this threat. So it's going to get more interesting. 
The Microsoft blog post goes on to make some recommendations for how you are to protect yourself from threats like this. The first two are pretty obvious. Keep your system up to date with security updates and don't install software from untrusted sources. And finally, lest they get away without any self-serving recommendations, the post also suggests that you install Microsoft Defender Smart Screen for its enterprise protection features on your Mac and that you use Edge instead of Safari for browsing. From the didn't think this one all the way through department, California has an environmentalist problem. I'm sorry, let me rephrase. California has an environmental problem. Well, both. For the last decade, California has been the nation's leader in adoption of battery-powered vehicles. Yes, Bemlet, there's your, your anti-battery car rant. The state accounts for more than 40% of the EVs in the United States, due largely to the fact that California has also been the nation's leader in providing taxpayer-funded subsidies to the electric car industry and the nation's leader in restricting the types of cars that the free market is allowed to sell. And why shouldn't they? After all, electric vehicles are clean, zero emission, carbon neutral, environmentally friendly, and whatever other buzzwords you can find in the EV company's sales brochure. That brochure rightly points out that EVs are much cleaner than the coal and smog spewing 1973 V8 gas guzzler that always seems to be the antagonist in these comparisons. Compared to the smog mobiles of 50 years ago, today's petrol-powered cars are also amazingly clean and fuel-efficient. But let's not allow facts to get in the way of propaganda. Of course, the sales pitch from EV proponents seldom mention how clean modern inter internal combustion engines are, nor do they mention the carbon footprint of manufacturing an electric car and of shipping them on a container ship from wherever they're made, never in the USA, to wherever they're mandated. What of the environmental damage of strip mining for rare materials like lithium or cobalt needed for the batteries, metals which, at our current rate of battery production, the world will actually run out of within a few decades? This as opposed to oil, which despite 50 years of doomsaying, still seems quite plentiful in the free market, or iron, the main component in an internal combustion engine, and without a doubt the most abundant metal on Earth, the brochures also never mention that the vast majority of the grid energy that goes into powering those electric cars is generated by fossil fuels, usually natural gas, because the vast majority of EV owners selfishly plug their cars in after they get home from work. When the sun has gone down, the wind has died down for the evening, and those green wind and solar plants sit uselessly idle, and the gas plants have to click on to pick up the slack. Oh, and the brochures never mention the fact that an electric car's battery pack, the heftiest single component in the vehicle by both weight and cost, has a huge carbon footprint to manufacture and transport, and a maximum usable lifespan between 5 and 10 years, depending on how often you drive it. Or that nobody in the industry knows exactly what to do with one of those batteries once it's reached its end of useful life and can't be put back into a car. But there's some good news. More than a decade after first subsidizing the electric vehicle industry, and as used-up batteries start piling up in landfills and junkyards, someone in California legislature thought to ask what could be done with the batteries once they were no longer viable in electric cars. To that end, the legislature passed Assembly Bill 2832 in 2018 to form a committee consisting of regulators, manufacturers, academics, and industry insiders, all on the same side of the spectrum, I point out, to develop recommendations to ensure that as close to 100% as possible of lithium-ion batteries in the state are reused or recycled at the end of life. 
Four years later, we have the committee's report. Spoiler alert. They aren't really sure what to do with the batteries. The number one recommendation in the report is to use them as batteries. An old car battery, which no longer holds enough charge to reach a set level of range in a car, can be repurposed for grid storage. I give them credit. This is definitely a good idea. We've talked about grid storage on this show before. It is a necessary component to green methods of power generation. We know that the highest demand for power comes in the evening when people are settling in after work, cooking the evening meal, watching the game, and charging their electric vehicles. But peak power generation for solar comes several hours earlier at midday and indeed falls off to near zero once the sun goes down. Well, zero after the sun goes down. And peak wind power is almost impossible to predict. So you need some way of storing electricity for the few hours between when it's generated and when it's needed. And used car batteries are pretty decent for that. They don't hold as much power as a new battery, but so what? Just add more. They're plentiful as long as people keep buying new EVs. But eventually the batteries will wear out enough that they can't be used for that either. So what else did the committee come up with after four years and who knows how many taxpayer dollars? I don't know. That's right. Nothing. No other suggestions. The report does point out that there are recyclers who accept used EV batteries, but that the process only partially recycles the materials. And they called out one such smelting process, which was mentioned. It's able to recycle most of the common materials in the battery, but does not recover any of the lithium, which was kind of the point of the report. They also point out that it, quote, can result in carbon emissions, doesn't everything. By the way, hey, California, this podcast is resulting in carbon emissions every time I exhale. According to the report, there are only five recyclers in the United States willing to accept EV batteries. None of them are in California due to the state's onerous hazardous waste regulations. And so after four years and the greatest minds that the pro EV movement can come up with, the government of California has no real answers, nor do they really even understand the scope of the problem. The report notes that there is no government process to track used EV batteries, and there's no official system to collect them. Without a mechanism to correct stranded, collect stranded batteries, they may be unsafely accumulated, illegally abandoned, or improperly managed domestically and abroad. The report concludes that, for now, used batteries should simply be stockpiled waiting for better economics or technology before you do anything with them. They recommend a government registration system to track all batteries, presumably to make sure that an environmental scofflaw who improperly stores or, God forbid, landfills a battery can be caught and punished appropriately. This is what I mean when I say laws that force X percent of the cars sold to be EVs are misguided and dangerous. They didn't think through all the details. They can't. The legislation is written by humans, extremely arrogant humans with enough hubris to think that they can plan an economy better than everyone else combined, but humans nonetheless. California has 42% of Americans' electric vehicles, thanks to its progressive environmental policies, according to the OC Register article, but that's not enough. It also goes on to point out that only 2.3% of California's light-duty vehicles are electric, and they're still starting to see these problems. The legislature also passed in 2018 Senate Bill 1014, which requires all ride-sharing companies, Uber and Lyft, to have plans in place to go to 100% electric by 2023. I wonder how those plans are doing. In 2020, Governor Newsom also penned a mandate, which means no legislature required, that all light-duty vehicles be 100% electric within the next 13 years. 
That's 13 years to go from 2.3% to 100%. Lofty goals. And yet, they still have no general solution for how to make it work. How to charge EVs when there's no garage, such as apartment buildings or on-street parking. How to deal with the strain on the power grid from everybody plugging in their cars all at 6 p.m. And in the end, how to deal with all the hazardous waste that this technology creates when batteries are used up. I have an idea. An emergent, any emergency responder who's dealt with electric vehicle fires can tell you that the batteries burn for a really, really long time. Maybe the state can build special fireplaces and just use the batteries for home heating. And for the people who don't have homes, the state could just wheel a couple EV batteries onto the sidewalk and light them up. Heat for the whole winter. Boom. Housing crisis and energy crisis solved all in one go. And finally, from the freshly laundered department, NFTs have taken another step toward legitimacy. A security report from Chainalysis.com has revealed a large number of people either buying their own F NFTs or trading NFTs back and forth amongst a small number of accounts in order to drive up the price. Called wash trading, this practice was common in the roaring 1920s as a way to gaslight the market and manipulate security prices until it was outlawed by the, in the United States by the Commodity Exchange Act of 1936. The practice enjoyed a brief resurgence early last decade, surreptitiously injected into high-frequency trading algorithms where they're almost impossible to detect by some of the less ethical Wall Street firms, which, let's face it, probably describes more of them than you think. This led to a significant increase in oversight of high-frequency trading by both the U.S. SEC and IRS starting in 2014. Well, now, in clear evidence that the ethics of cryptocurrency traders is coming more in line with that of Wall Street, Washed trading has come to NFTs. The Chainalysis report tracked many instances of a small handful of accounts buying and selling the same NFTs up to 25 times and identified a group of 110 crypto wallets who collectively made $8.9 million from the practice. And even if an NFT didn't go for millions, some people made it up in volume. The most traded NFT in the report took part in 830 trades between related accounts and netted an average of a little over $10 per trade for a total of $8,380 in profit. The other thing the Chainalysis report shows is plenty of evidence of good old-fashioned money laundering amongst crypto trades. Of course, that didn't make nearly as many headlines due to the simple fact that it is not news to anyone. Ultimately, this report does little to mitigate my skepticism for NFTs. It does, however, reinforce my thesis that the real winners in this new monetary system are the ones charging the transit fees, which I guess is another thing it has in common with the old banking system. Thanks go out to Brennan Kidwell and Raymond Zorger for producing this episode of Angry Tech News. Also thanks to everybody who boosted sats using a new podcast app. You know who you are. Unfortunately, I don't, because I didn't get them. I like to think that I'm at least a little bit technical minded. And because of that, and also because I apparently hate myself, I decided to run my own lightning node rather than use a custodial service. I'm learning that the system has some kinks to work out and there's not too much help out there because everybody's kind of stumbling around blindly on their own. So shout out to the only two users whose boosts appeared on my node, Cdubs and Servo, both of whom opened up a channel directly to my node. Unfortunately, no other payments got routed this week. Oh, the cost of being an early adopter in a new technology, I suppose. 
Angry Tech News is produced on the value for value model. We don't take sponsors and we don't play ads and we do not charge you to listen, but we are funded by your donations. If you received value from listening to this show, please send some value back. Go to angrytechnews.com and click on the donate button. Send what you think this show was worth to you, whether it's $20, $50 or $150. That's all for me. I'm Ryan Bemros, the Angry Programmer. I'll be back next week with more Angry Tech News. This has been Angry Tech News with the Angry Programmer, Ryan Bemrose at angrytechnews.com. Stay angry. Stay angry. Stay angry.